Welcome back to People's History of the Old Republic, episode 6.2, You Need a Teacher. Last time we discussed the Exile's lore-filled escape from Paragus II with the help of a hotshot pilot, a mysterious new Jedi Master, and an overpowered astromech. In this episode, we try to fix one of the big problems facing Telos IV and get to kick some Zerka ass again. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in Legends. Before we get started today, I uh, just wanted to do a little bit of podcast business. Um, we wanted to update you, our wonderful listeners, on our schedule during and after the holidays. Um, seems likely that Nights of the Old Republic 2 will take about seven or so more episodes, including this one, which means it would end at uh, episode 6.8, though that is subject to change depending on... How much we, how much time we decide to spend lamenting the death of Knights of the Old Republic Three? We will also have two special episodes coming up in December. Kelsey and I will be posting a review episode uh, of Episode Nine, The Rise of Skywalker, and discussing our feelings about it and everything, and uh, including any possible Old Republic references that we might notice. Um, we will also be doing an episode of commentary on the. Star Wars Holiday Special. Um, to my unlimited shame, I've never actually seen the Holiday Special, so it's time to rectify that this year. It will be quite exciting to celebrate Life Day with all of you. All of this means that we will likely finish KOTOR 2 sometime in early January 2020, and then, unfortunately, the show is going to take a brief hiatus until March 2020, so that yours truly can buckle down and study to take the bar exam in yet another state. Huh. Fine. After the bar, we will pick the narrative back up with Series 7, which will cover Star Wars The Old Republic MMO. And that's going to take a while because of that whole eight years of content thing. But at least we will get to discuss the tour cinematics, which are, unironically, some of my favorite pieces of Star Wars content ever created. Believe me, we'd rather not take a break. I really don't want to take another bar, but, you know, life. Uh, but it won't be too long before trying to figure out answers to questions like how the hell was Revan alive for KOTOR in 3956 and still alive some 300 years later when the events of TOR take place. And if you can't get enough of me hearing me talk about Star Wars, uh, check out my Twitch channel, next Friday when I will be playing the new game that releases Jedi Fallen Order and talking about that game and everything. Uh, you can find me as Luke is still amazing on Twitch. Um, probably also post those videos on YouTube. It's great. It's great. It's a fun, exciting time. We're definitely not going to have to figure out how um, Jefferson Starship is canon in Star Wars or not. I'm very much looking forward to our holiday episodes. <laughs> so, um, with that business out of the way, on to the narrative. Knights of the Old Republic 2, The Sith Lords Part 2, Citadel Station, and Telos 4. Right, we're just going to start with some of the profiles we missed um, in episode 6.1 instead of you know trying to find clever ways to work them into our narrative. 
Character ketchup, T3M4. So, he's one of the characters from KOTOR. After T3 helped save the galaxy above Rakata Prime in 3956, he settled down with Revan and Bastila Shan on Coruscant. T3 hung around there until 3954, when Revan's memories began returning and he went to the unknown regions in search of the growing dark presence he felt. The astromech accompanied Revan on the Ibanhak as they traveled to Rekiat, then to Nathema after Revan recovered Mandalore's mask in the tomb of Dramath II. On Nathema, Revan crashed the Ibanhak due to disorientation from lack of a force signature surrounding the planet. The ship was badly damaged in the crash. Revan was knocked unconscious by the landing and was captured by two members of the true Sith Empire, which is the presence he sought, and they were named Lord Scourge and Darth Neerus. Don't worry about them. All of this comes from the 2012 novel, The Old Republic Revan, so we'll go through all of it in depth later. T3 went undiscovered in the ship's wreckage, and after Revan's captors departed, the droid was left as the only animate and sentient object on Nathema. Normally, a droid is not programmed to adapt to such situations, but T3 is different. The astromech never had a memory wipe and thus developed a personality and idiosyncrasies similar to R2-D2. Much like R2, T3 also held secret programming. Before Revan departed the unknown regions, his wife Bastila discreetly sliced T3's programming and installed a failsafe program that would activate if T3 became separated from Revan. If that occurred, the droid would return to the known galaxy and seek out Bastil or the nearest Jedi he could find. With the Ibn Hawk inoperable, T3 set to work, fixing and spent three whole years on the lifeless world, Nathema finding parts and rebuilding the ship. In 3951, the ship was finally operable, and T3 piloted it back to the galaxy, but couldn't find Bastila, so he sought out Revan's old friend, Mitra Surik. Learning that she was on the Harbinger, T3 sought her out, but the Hawk was attacked by a Sith freighter. Location Ketchup, the Ebon Hawk. So T3's profile just now pretty much kept, catches you up on the Hawk. After KOTOR, Revan used it as his personal ship before taking it to Rekiad and Nathema in the Unknown Regions in 3954 after it was nearly destroyed. Um, then subsequently rebuilt by T3, the Ebon Hawk returned to known space and was promptly almost destroyed again. However, this wasn't a triumphant return. Although T3 did all he could to repair it, the Hawk still had the Hawk still had to planet hop on low power to get back to the galaxy. Then Knights of the Old Republic 2 begins. At some point between the time T3 got the ship running again on Nathema and the time we see it at the beginning of the game, the blaster-scarred and deactivated body of HK-47 was placed in the Hawk's storage compartment. We don't know what happened, except someone blasted HK-47 multiple times from close range and damaged four of his main components. If Surik finds and replaces them, she gets HK-47 back as a companion, though that can't happen until after leaving Telos and visiting at least one more world because of the parts you need. At some point before it came to it came into Mitra Sirk's ownership, the nav computer was wiped clean and locked with a voice imprint so no one could determine where it had been. 
Thus, T3 served as the ship's navigator. This is probably a good time to mention that a lot of the background info we have here comes from stuff intentionally written to fill in the gaps. The Old Republic, the Old Republic Revan, for example, was published eight years after KOTOR 2 debuted, so for a long time, we didn't really have an answer for how the Ebon Hawk got here after Revan took it to the Unknown Regions. It's perfect, purposefully left unexplained. If you remember playing KOTOR 2, you probably remember being frustrated at the vagaries in the backstory. This was, of course, an intentional narrative device used by Obsidian so that whoever uh, published KOTOR 3 could fill in the story and tell us what Revan had been doing for five years. Instead, we got a novel we got a novel and an MMO about it, which was not a fair trade at all. No offense intended to Drew Carpician. He did yeoman's work filling in the gaps as well as he did, and of course was a lead writer on KOTOR. All right. Character profile, Aton Rand. Aton is a human male who was born on Alderaan sometime between 3983 and 3980 BBY. Aton is most definitely an alias, and his given name was likely Jock, a nickname he often used. Aton is the handsome rogue Han Solo type of this game, and the pilot of the Iban Hawk, much like Karth Onasi before him. Aton's history is complicated and tragic, while his motives range from hopelessly noble to always thinking with his dick. Rand originally served as a soldier in the Republic, fighting in the Mandalorian Wars after 3964, but followed Revan and Malak into the Unknown Regions because they earned his loyalty. Instead of waiting around like the Jedi Council and much of the Republic, Revan and Malak took the fight to the Mandalorians. Those Jedi who followed Revan and Malak fell to the dark side, but as far as Atten was concerned, they were the good guys. At least they hadn't left planets to die based on flimsy pretenses of neutrality or half-hearted promises like the Jedi and the Republic back on Coruscant. Atten converted to the Sith when Darth Revan declared his new empire in 3959. The Sith teachings had filtered through the ranks while Revan and Malak sought the Starforge. It was an easy decision for Atten, just like following him them in the first place. I'll save the rest of Atten's work with the Sith for his companion loyalty mission, which happens on Nar Shaddaa. But there are a few more notes about him. His character design was originally based on British singer Robert Palmer, but Atten's age was later scaled down drastically, so the design changed accordingly. His younger design was based on a developer, though early concept art still shows Atten looking much older. We only know a couple of Robert Palmer songs, so expect a lot of addicted to love and simply irresistible puns with Mr. Rand. Another fun fact, Atten Rand was originally the name of a player character in the video game Jedi Knight Jedi Academy. That character was later called Jaden Kor. If you beat KOTOR 2 twice, Atten will look directly at the player and reveal this fact. Oh, last thing, Atten Rand is Force-sensitive and will become a Jedi Sentinel when trained by the Jedi Exile. That's right, in addition to Kraya and Visas Mar, who are already Force users, Surik can train Mira, the Disciple, or the Handmaiden, Baudur, and Aten in the ways of the Force. This, this game is just lousy with random Force users everywhere, which is good as far as I'm concerned. Character profile Darth Sion. Always a bridesmaid, never a bride. Sion was overshadowed by his contemporaries at all turns. 
In the Sith Triumvirate, he was taught by Darth Treya, whose words echoed through his head and pained him so. After Treya was overthrown and Sion led the Triumvirate along with Darth Nihilus, Sion did much Jedi killing from the shadows. But it will never hold a candle to Nihilus's power to annihilate an entire world from existence, and let's be honest, that really cool mask helps too. Why it was still called a triumvirate after the fall of a triumvir is unknown. The human male who would become Darth Sion was born on an unknown world before 4000 BBY. It appears that as a boy, Sion may have suffered from chronic or persistent pain and illness of some kind, something that he channeled to fuel his power and rage in the dark side. In 3996, Sion served as a Sith Marauder in Exar Kun's army during the Great Sith War. Sion, which may have been his given name before joining the Sith, would charge into battle seeking Jedi to kill and his own death. When he was finally killed on the battlefield, Sion's pain and hatred swelled to such levels that they compelled his seemingly dead body to rise and take vengeance upon his killer. Sion found that in order to in order to survive, he had to constantly focus on his rage, but doing, show, but doing so made him functionally immortal. Each time he was struck down, he rose again. He found that his body could be held together through the dark side, and he used it to fuse his broken bones together and keep his mottled gray flesh in place. His right eye had severe scarring, exposing much of the orbital bone and much of his all-white eyeball, right eyeball. Uh, didn't have a pupil, so he had a badly damaged torso with pox of skin missing, cracks, and deep cuts in his skin ran all over his body. After Kuhn's Sith resurgence failed, Sion went underground but joined Revan's Sith Empire when it was founded around 3959. Sion became a Sith Lord within Revan's Empire, but that all fell apart in 3956 with the death of Darth Malak. Once again, the Sith had been defeated, and Sion saw them fall to infighting on Korriban. Like many, he became a warlord during the early days of the Sith Civil War, leading all those who bent the knee and killing all who refused. In 3955, Sion joined his power with Nihilus and Trya, and they formed the Sith Triumvirate, their main goal being the eradication of the Jedi through cautious action from the Shadows, they didn't seem to have too many plans for the Republic other than undermining its legitimacy to further destabilize the galaxy. In 3954, Darth Sion sent out his first groups of Sith assassins from the Trias Academy on Malachor V, beginning the first Jedi Purge. Slowly, Jedi were captured and turned, or more often than not, simply killed. However, Sion and Nihilus wished to prosecute their war against the Jedi more zealously than Trya, so they decided to combine their power to defeat their master. This is the part we've talked about a few times already where Nihilus holds Trias still while Sion beats her senseless and then they cast her out from the Sith Triumvirate and went about their purge. We won't belabor the point any further. After this, Sion struck from the shadows with his Sith assassins and by 3952, the Jedi had been hunted to near extinction after Darth Nihilus' feeding at Qatar. Sion and Nihilus sought the last few who had gone underground as they hoped to finally snuff out the last of the Jedi and finish off the first Jedi Purge in style. In 3951, just before the events of KOTOR 2, Sion captured a Jedi Master named Lona Vash who had traveled to Korriban hoping to eliminate Sion. 
Instead, Darth Sion locked her away in the old Sith Academy. Finally, Sion heard rumors that the last Jedi had returned to the known galaxy and so loaded a Sith warship with assassins and sought her out as KOTOR 2 begins. Darth Sion has a gravelly Scottish accent and one of his main themes, aside from always playing second fiddle to someone else, is that he loves Mitra Surik but doesn't know how to express those feelings because he's been too twisted by the dark side. Now that we're done, we can get back to the game. Once the Evan Hawk escapes the destruction of Paragus, a cutscene begins showing the companions getting into heated arguments. Atten has no clue what the hell is happening or why he's involved with Sith and Jedi. Mitra Surik is still disoriented from her extended sleep and has no idea about the past eight or so years of galactic history. Wherever she went during her exile, it was way off the grid. One really interesting contrast between Revan and Surik is that while Revan had essentially no answers for anything before the beginning of the Knights of the Old Republic, Surik has answers about her past as long as it was during or before the Mandalorian Wars. She doesn't talk about her exile at all. Uh, the player gets to choose how to answer or deflect these questions, though any answer makes it quite clear that Surik suffers from severe PTSD from her years in war and exile. Kraya, meanwhile, is refreshingly open during this dialogue in stark contrast to her usual condescending aloofness. Surik has many questions. First, why are the Sith looking for her? Kraya says that it's because she's the last Jedi and, quote, once you are dead, they win. No pressure. Surik probably had another question along this line, but she didn't know about the horrible fate of the Jedi Order in the last eight years. When she left, the Order was divided and about to go through their own civil war, but there were still hundreds of Jedi and two Jedi councils and younglings. I mean, there may have been, there, stay, there still may have been a thousand Jedi at that time. Well, Kraya has bad news. The Jedi Order is gone. She recounts that after the Jedi Civil War, less than 100 Jedi survived across the galaxy. This was the first use of the term Jedi Civil War in Star Wars, as far as we know. They had to come up with a term to explain the, the previous war. Uh, many Jedi were killed. Many fell to the dark side and joined the Sith under Revenant Malak. Well, what about the Dantooine Enclave? Well, it's, quote, nothing more than a crater that echoes with the ghost of dead Jedi, end quote. Surely the Jedi High Council on Coruscant still stands. Nope. Kreia says that the room of a thousand fountains lies quiet, quote, in reverence to the fallen Jedi and those now lost, end quote. Kreia says that Surik will need allies and offers to be her master as she reconnects to the Force. Surik now has the chance to talk to her companions or go directly to Tilos 4. We're going to talk to them because of course we are, and we begin the long, strange journey with Kreia's teachings and her wild influence swings. Despite many jokes to the contrary, it's easy enough to gain influence with Kreia by massaging her ego or by apologizing for failing in her eyes, but she's also going to ding you for seemingly normal acts like giving a homeless person change. We're going to talk to Kreia a lot during this game, and there are two things you have to remember when she's talking. The first is that she's a liar full stop, and that the second is she doesn't want the exile to trust anyone, even her. Kraya tells big lies and small lies and half-truths and everything in between. But the lies are sprinkled in with so many convincing truths that they are hard to suss out, especially early in the game. Hell, she lies to the Exile twice in their first dialogue aboard the Iban Hawk. 
telling the exile it was the Jedi Council who cut her off from the Force and that no one living knew where Revan went after KOTOR. The first is false for reasons we've discussed, though Mitra Sarek won't learn, them and learn that until visiting Dantooine a second time in KOTOR 2. The second is false because Kryon knows that both T3 and Bastila Shan are at least vaguely aware of where he went. Kryon does all of this, supposedly, to teach the exile the first and most important lesson. Never trust anyone, even her. Kryon remembers all the betrayals she's suffered, all the failures, and she doesn't want the exile to follow the path and recreate her mistakes. During their dialogue, Kraya lays out the general state of the galaxy for the exile and talks about how the Mandalorian Wars fed the Jedi Civil War, which in turn feeds our current conflict, the Sith Civil War. The Republic, she says, must show that it can survive being tested without having the Jedi to fall back on. Finally, Kraya says that the true battles are those that go on in the hearts of all people, determining whether their light or dark side nature will win. She sums it quite succinctly for the exile, quote, And if you fall, the death of the Republic will be such a quiet thing, a whisper, that shall herald the darkness to come, end quote. No pressure. The conversation with Atten Rand is much more pleasant. In many ways, despite being a roguish pilot with a heart of gold and a checkered past, Rand stands in for normal galactic citizens and renders ongoing meta-commentary on Star Wars during the story. Atten will be the will be the one who reminds us that the Jedi and Sith don't represent everyone in the galaxy. There are trillions upon trillions of beings out there who can't wield a lightsaber or lift rocks. Hell, most of them will never meet a Jedi. Rand knows that far too often we fall into a great men of history analysis in Star Wars, and he's not going to be having any of that. Atten, Atten's also going to spend a lot of time on our adventures giving meta-commentary on the Star Wars franchise like a good, if annoying, fan. Atten doesn't waste any time either. It's even present in the first dialogue between Rand and Surik, where the pilot complains, quote, just so you know, just so you Jedi know, that whole cryptic routine isn't mysterious. It's just irritating, end quote. He's not wrong. As the conversation continues, we learn more interesting bits of info, uh, like the fact that the red light district on Nar Shaddaa is called the red, red, oh my God, is called the red sector and what type of lightsaber Surik used. This is another point where the player answers a fairly innocuous question, but it is of vital importance because it decides what type of lightsaber Surik has in her, the flashback to her trial and that is currently in Atris's possession. Atten asks Surik why she doesn't have a lightsaber since Jedi are usually married to those things. Mitra then opens up about being exiled from the Order and having to give up her lightsaber. Atten will then ask a series of questions and the player can choose what type of lightsaber their exile used and has a range of colors to choose from, including silver, silver, purple, and even red. Uh, Mitra says her blade and hilt were both unique, so we will go with silver because we've never seen one of those before. Uh, the dialogue with Rand ends and the Ebon Hawk exit hi- exits hyperspace for Citadel Station above Telos 4. Unfortunately, we won't, we won't get the hero's welcome we deserve because everyone blames us for killing the Telos Restoration Project. Without the cheap fuel they got from Paragus, the station will fall out of orbit, dooming the project to failure and leaving Telos 4 to its fate. Location Profile Citadel Station and Telos 4 
The TELO system was discovered shortly after the Great Hyperspace War, which occurred in 5000 BBY, as galactic expansion began again. TELOS 4 is a distant world located in the outer rim in the far northeast of the galaxy, but it is of vital importance to the Republic as it serves as a major point along the Hydean Way. The Hydean Way is one of the largest trade and hyperspace routes in the galaxy, and on its far opposite end sit Iradu and Mustafar in the corporate sector on the far southern edge of the galaxy. TELOS 4 itself is about as far from the core worlds as Dantooine, but served as an incredibly important hub world for Republic and Jedi. During the Mandalorian Wars, Telos IV served as a staging point for military endeavors by the Republic and later the Jedi. The planet also housed the Jedi Agricultural Corps, the largest of the four Jedi Service Corps. The Jedi created the Service Corps for Jedi Initiates who failed to make the rank of Padawan or Knight, but still wanted to use their Force sensitivity to better the galaxy. The Agricultural Corps on Telos IV did large amounts of food, most of which went to feed the Republic military. To assist in such efforts, the world was also home to a planet-wide irrigation system controlled from the polar region. Telos IV was the home world of our old friend, Karth Onasi, as well as his wife, Morgana, and son, Dostil. Then, the Jedi Civil War started, and the Sith aimed to eliminate the world as a threat in the Outer Rim. Though Darth Revan sought to control the world and exploit it for Sith uses, Darth Malak had other ideas. In 3958, Malak ordered the newly defected Admiral Saul Karath to obliterate Telos IV as a test of his loyalty to the Sith cause. Karath obliged his new master using the Sith fleet and his flagship, the Leviathan, to decimate the surface of Telos IV. The bombardment affected more than 95% of the surface and killed millions while simultaneously creating thousands of refugees. Sometime after 3958, the Jedi built a secret academy in the northern polar region on the site of the old irrigation system. Shortly before the Sith bombing of Dantooine, the Jedi covertly transferred much of the Enclave's texts, holocrons, and other learning materials to the secret Telos Academy. Following the bombardment, but before his capture, Revan had an HK-50 factory built on the surface of Telos IV below ground. Citadel Station is it, Citadel Station is a massive station that was built around 3955 to attempt to terraform the planet into a livable place once more. The station serves as the base of the Telos Restoration Project provides homes for its workers and many refugees, and holds all the amenities they seek. The station consists of numerous different modules for residential work and entertainment areas, all of which are connected by walkways and a tram system. As you've heard, the Telos Restoration Project was probably the most important galactic initiative of the time. If it, it succeeded as a test case, it meant hope for the hundreds of worlds decimated by four, four wars in 40-plus years. The project was created by Supreme Chancellor Tol Kressa and run by the Force-sensitive Athorian Chodo Habat and his herd. They divided the world into more than 20 restoration zones and projected shield walls from Citadel Station to demarcate each zone, using the station to control weather for each. Under Athorian oversight, Telos IV began to flourish again as they imported beasts from many worlds, including Onderon and Duxun, to help stabilize various ecosystems. 
Unfortunately, the opportunity to make credits through Greed and Graft brought unwanted attention like that of Zerka Corporation. Zerka got their hooks into the Telosian government and were allowed to participate in the restoration, causing it to stagnate. By 3951, the project will be on its last legs due to Zerka meddling and a lack of fuel because some idiot blew up Progress 2. Citadel Station even has its own police force in the form of the Telosian Security Force, or TSF. They're going to try and get us to do a bunch of their dirty work, and we'll do it, but we'll be grumbling about it the whole time. The Exchange Crime Syndicate is also heavily involved on Citadel Station, running their usual extortion and black market operations. Aten lands the Iban Hawk in Dock Module 126. Instead of being hassled for docking fees by Circa Darks, Lieutenant Dolgran of the TSF is on his way. We've only been here for five minutes. Why are the cops harassing us? Just because the ship is filled with a former member of Sith Special Ops, a disgraced former Jedi war criminal, a former Dark Lord of the Sith, and the best ship-repairing astromech to ever be built? It's oh, can't be that. Profiling, that's what that is. Oh, right, and there's also the thing where we're wanted for blowing up a planet, thus killing the Telos Restoration Project, which in turn sentences countless worlds to remain as uninhabitable wastelands. Despite the fact that we didn't really do it, the Telos government is launching an investigation, and since we're the only witnesses, the TSF is putting us under house arrest until this whole matter can be sorted out. In the meantime, they're impounding the Ibanhawk, taking our weapons and droids, and locking us up until they can find a place for us to stay. While the companions are being processed by the Citadel Station police, a cut scene shows a woman running onto the ship and hijacking the Ibanhawk from the police impound lot with T3 on board. How do you let a ship get stolen from impound? We're beginning to think the TSF is just a bunch of Keystone cops. After Mitra, Atten, and Kraya have been locked in their holding cells for some time, a TSF officer enters the room to get a good look at the last Jedi. This man claims his name is Batu Rem and that he's with the TSF, but they're way more of the comically inept type of cops than the murder a prisoner in the cell and make it look like a suicide type of cops. Batu Rem says he's with the exchange and he's going to collect the big bounty on Jedi, but instead of just electrocuting us in our cells, he frees us due to Atten's antagonism and dies for the trouble. Lieutenant Gren arrives moments later and claims this is all a huge misunderstanding because the real Batu Rem went on vacation for a few weeks. The dead exchange thug may have Rem's beds, but he's an imposter. Gren promises to get down to the bottom of this and then shows us to our apartment in the residential 082 East module. If this whole fake Batu Rim thing felt out of place on your first playthrough, you're not alone. Originally, the fake TSF officer was meant to be a member of the Gino Haradin Guild of Assassins. After Revan wiped out their leadership, they reorganized as a death cult of sorts that also did assassins. The Gino Haradin quest would have involved more attempted assassinations and culminate on Nar Shaddaa. On the Smuggler's Moon, a Gino Haradin member named Desicus would blow up the Jekjektar Cantina with the exile inside, causing the party and the Sith to believe her to be dead. 
This would then end with Darth Nihilus and Darth Sion dueling on the Bridge of the Ravager. Though it was removed from the game, several players and modders have managed to piece together clips of the cutscene showing the fight between Nihilus and Sion. At least five different versions of the duel exist and can be found on YouTube, and while there are subtle differences to each, they all show essentially the same events. Uh, Darth Sion boards the Ravager and approaches Darth Nihilus on the bridge. Sion informs his fellow Triumvir that the exile was killed, that Darth Treus still lived, and that their partnership was being dissolved since the Jedi were finished. We don't know what Nihilus says because he doesn't speak any language that we can comprehend, and it sounds like a ghost speaking in tongues through a stoma, though it appears that the Jedi and Sith could interpret his words. Sion turns to leave, but whatever Nihilus says causes him to pause and draw his red lightsaber. As Sion goes in for the attack, Nihilus turns around for the first time and uses a combination of Force Drain and Force Lightning on Sion, the Sith assassins who had accompanied their lord, and even some of his own men. In one of the videos, Nihilus shocks them so much that they explode into ash and leave burn marks on the floor. Except for Sion, except for Sion, he doesn't. Uh, Nihilus then uses the force to suspend Sion in the air and bring him closer while torturing him with force lightning in a truly masterful display of power. Darth Sion appears to die, but rises and goes for the attack again and is thrown by a force push from Nihilus, taking the title of Sith Master, Master and forcing Sion to become his apprentice. Sion can't even be the big dog in a deleted scene. The restored content mod plays a big part on Telos 4, though not until later in the game. There are a few minor additions early, but most of it is saved for the return to Telos 4. It's the HK Droid Factory, extended scenes with Atris, and more. Despite our mention of both the Geno Hardin sideplot and the duel between Nihilus and Sion, neither are included in the restored content mod, probably because they were too buggy or incomplete. Back in the game, Surik, Kraya, and Rand are on house arrest until this whole issue with Paragus is resolved, though they can receive visitors. This is a convenient time to discuss what the fuck we're actually doing on Telos 4 because the companions don't even seem to know. Kraya believes that all roads lead to Telos 4 and we're here for a reason, even if it's unclear what the reason is at the moment. At this point, the ultimate adventure of the game has yet to be revealed. We're still trying to get our bearings. Much like Terrace in KOTOR, Telos 4 serves as a jumping off point for the rest of the story. By the time we find the Hidden Jedi Academy, we'll start getting into the heart of the main adventure, finding the last four Jedi Masters. However, the group doesn't yet know that the Banak was stolen. Luckily, there is a convenient scenario that requires our attention and will give us a chance to get the ship back. As we've discussed both in the location profile earlier and in episode 6.0, come one, all, come, all, come one, come all to this tragic affair, the Telos Restoration Project is run by Chodo Habat and his Ithorian herd. At the outset, their efforts were successful and even made a couple of zones inhabitable, but then Circa showed up. Circa Corp were eventually allowed to begin working on the project after bribing or intimidating key Telosian government officials. By the time the exile arrived on Citadel Station, the project stands on the brink of failure. The Athorians can heal the planet, but continued Circa involvement will kill it. 
Mitra Surek is offered competing jobs by both groups, each of whom will supply info on the Ibon Hawk later. She obviously selects the Athorians because they're the light side choice, but the Force-sensitive Chodo Habat also offers to help heal Surik's connection to the Force however he can. Kreia bristles at the Athorian offer of help with the Force, but she can shove her jealousy. After all these offers are received, we can finally explore Citadel Station and quickly find that it's a series of long hallways and a bunch of people who need help with side quests. Of course, we're going to start out with some light apartment looting, just like in KOTOR. There's a Twi'lek who lost his girlfriend in a game of Pazak, and now she's enslaved by some creep down at the cantina. The Twi'lek, named Hana, asks the exile for help, which she does after going to the cantina to free Ramana, his ex-girlfriend. The exile can pay to free Ramana or win her in a game of Pazak. However, Hana... Hana is not going to be happy with the outcome because Romana wants nothing to do with him after that whole losing her in a game of cards thing. Romana wants nothing to do with Hana, and the exile has to choose between freeing her or forcing her to dance for money. As you can probably guess, the exile frees Romana, who goes off to start a new life, hopefully free of idiots like Hana. Next stop is getting our gear back from the TSF office in Entertainment Module 081 which holds the cantina, two duros who are brothers at odds with one another morally, and some mercenaries trying to rough up a Sullustan. The XL and her companions arrive at the TSF offices and retrieve all their gear, only to be told by the TSF protocol droid that the Ebon Hawk was stolen with T3 inside, and they don't know where it is or who took it. The droid is of no ho- help, so we go to chat with Lieutenant Grin. He's awful sorry about our ship getting stolen, but offers some bounties to help pass the time. The TSL, the TSF needs help with four issues. Finding the identity of the fake Batu Rim who tried to kill us. Finding out who is smuggling illegal weapons on a Citadel station. Locating a witness named Batono. And capturing two escaped criminals. Grant also gives the Rebuilding the Republic quest when the Exile asks about fuel fuel shortages, though the quest can be received from others too. This quest will allow Sarek and her companions to find an alternate source of fuel for Telos 4 and later assist in the on their own civil war. We're going to help Lieutenant Grant out since these are bounties and not just being a cop, though the line between those two professions here is razor thin. Listen, we just need the XP and credits and need to feel better about briefly becoming cops to do it. Helping out the Athorians is far less morally hazardous. If you can't picture an Athorian, the most famous one is Mama Nadan, one of the many alien patrons shown in Shaman's Cantina in A New Hope. Mama is the guy with a long, flat head, a trait that led to the Athorians derisively called hammerheads. Uh, helping Athorians instead of Circa is just one of the many times we will disappoint Kriya in this journey. The companions make the short walk over to Residential Module 082 to find the Athorian embassy and speak with their priest, Chodo Habat. He recounts many of the details we've already covered about the Telos Restoration Project and Circa, but asks the exile to assist in hopefully ridding the station of Circa's stench forever. In order to do this, the exile must complete a series of errands that will 
take her all over the station and hopefully cross off a few side quests too. First, Chodohaba asks Mitrasurik to go to the dock module and escort a droid AI capable of calculating the monstrous amount of numbers that go into terraforming a planet. This droid is to replace the original superior droid intelligence provided by the Republic that was either stolen, overtaxed, or just went missing recently. Circa, obviously, wants the protocol droid for themselves, so when Surik and her companions begin the escort, they are beset by five armed exchange thugs. These thugs, hired by Circa and most early enemies, are no match for our heroes especially once upgraded powers like Force Barrier are available to protect against melee weapons. The battle is over quickly, and the droid is safely escorted back to the Athorians. The incident at the docks confirmed Chodo's suspicions, and he needs Zurich to find a way to remove the exchange from the station. Shurka is being watched by the TSF, so they've turned to the exchange for help, and we must put a stop to it. There's a catch, of course. You can't just walk in and see the exchange. They come to see you, and it's usually really bad news when a crime syndicate full of low-level mafiosos pays you a visit. After knocking on the door to be exchanged, but being told in firm in but being told in not so polite terms to get the fuck out, Surik remembers that there's a seedy cantina in the entertainment district. The canteen is just like every other canteen in Star Wars, a wretched hive of scum and villainy. There's two unnamed patrons arguing loudly about Onderon and secession from the Republic, Bith musicians, and one Twi'lek dancer since we previously freed Romana. There's also a pink-skinned Zeltron named Luxa wearing next to nothing who has an interesting proposition for Surik. Luxa... Luxa wants the Exile's help in killing her boss, Lopax Slusk, the leader of the exchange on Citadel Station. What a coincidence. We also need to speak to Slusk about the whole Ithorian situation, so we agree to kill Slusk in return for Luxa's help after he's gone. She's obviously going to betray the Exile because she works for Goto and Narshida, but we're prepared. The companions in fast travel to Residential Module 081 and prepare to fight through loads of exchange thugs at their base. The addition of fast travel to this game was a godsend. Within, Surik within, can kill the woman who works at the front desk, but that just seems silly, so we use a Jedi mind trick to get her to open the door and leave. Inside, there's a lot of boasting about whom will kill whom, but it doesn't matter because those exchange thugs die too. Slusk has retreated to his fortified office, but his Gamorrean guards let the exile in because they're in Lux's pocket. Finally, the companions corner Slusk and ask him to leave the Athorians alone, but before a deal could be accomplished, Luxa breaks in to betray us. Thus, a three-way fight ensues between Luxa and the Gamorreans, Slusk and his automated turrets, and our companions. The fight in Slusk's office is brutal and chaotic since it involves seven people and some turrets all crammed into a tiny room, but the Athorian and her but the exile and her companions prevail, ending any exchange threat to the Athorians. Back at Athorian HQ, Chido rewards the exile with an energy cell fixture, one of four parts that Surik needs to build a new lightsaber. The Athorians still need help, however, as Circa continues to cause problems and has embedded itself within the Telos government, using Telosian law to protect themselves. 
However, if their corruption is brought to light, Circa will be forcibly removed from the Restoration Project and Citadel Station. In order to find hard evidence of said corruption, the Exile will need to find some way to access the Circa mainframe, but can't do so remotely. They need an inside man and an inside droid. A jilted employee who's tired of the company says that the protocol droid at the Circa front desk, B4D4, has full mainframe access to the servers that contain evidence of massive corruption and graft. Additionally, this whistleblower says that a droid programmer named Chano has the credentials necessary to perform maintenance on B4 and change his programming. Chano is a Duro who resides in one of the apartments and says he's willing to help undermine Circa because they're evil but can't jeopardize his own position because he took out a usurious loan from Goto and the exchange. If Chano doesn't pay the loan back, the exchange will either kill him or sell him into slavery. The Jedi Exile can pay Chano 2,500 credits, but why do that when Jodo Habat will subsidize the endeavor and give the Exile the money to pay off the debt? Finally, after all that running back and forth, Chano gives up his droid maintenance credentials and the companions are able to lure B4 away from Circa because they hold the proper identification. Our reward for such hard work? More time in the droid simulator, this time giving the player control of B4 so they can enter the Circa mainframe and download the files that show clear evidence of corruption and then return to the Athorian compound. However, B4 is even more interesting because he's given the capability to lie, which is an invitation for the droid to cause mischief. Since B4 is known to much of the station, he is allowed to roam freely and can lie to cause havoc with other droids and even extort credits from Chano, who performed an awful lot of memory wipes on B4. The real B4 fun comes when the droid returns to the Zerka offices. B4 is confronted by Zerka exec Lana Jana Lurso, who runs their operation on Citadel Station. She's a Miri Allen with yellow skin and a black heart, but B4 easily deflects her questions, saying that he needs to access the mainframe to check on possible discrepancies in income that could mean more credits for Zerka. Lorso is a terribly greedy individual, so she's more than happy to accept this flimsy excuse. Inside the mainframe, B4 encounters a fellow Zerka droid named T1N1, an astromech, who is suspicious of B4's supposed need to access the system. B4 avoids T1's questions, but doesn't lie because he doesn't need to. B4 presents T1 with the paradox. T1 serves Jana Lorso, but is also programmed to do nothing to harm organic life. However, taking orders from Lorso directly harms many organics. Ergo, T1 is programmed to perform a task that causes him to also violate his programming, which is why Chano wipes T1's memory so often. If T1 were aware of the internal programming violation, the droid would develop severe quirks or go on a violent rampage. This revelation seems to outrage T1. The astromech thanks B4 for the help and goes off to use a stun ray against any Zerka employee he can find. T1 agrees not to betray B4's trust by revealing any of this to Zerka, which allows B4 to download the files and depart. Before he does, however, B4 also deletes all records of his purchase and time with Zerka, freeing him from his cruel organic overlords. B4 returns with the files, as promised, and is duly set free by Chodo, who reasons that he should not keep droid, droids against their will, even a droid that can lie. 
with these files, Chodo can have Zerka removed from the station, so he upholds his end of the bargain and heals Zerka's con- uh, and heals Zurich's connection to the Force in some small way, increasing her maximum Force po- points slightly. Chodo also has news about the Ibanhawk. The Athorian priest has heard that the ship touched down on Telos 4 in one of the stabilized restoration zones. Luckily, the engineer who designed the shields between each zone, a Sabrak named Baudur, is on the surface and will help locate the Ibanhawk. Zurich knows Baudur quite well from their time serving together during the Mandalorian Wars and activating the Mass Shadow Generator. A grateful Chodo Habat offers the exile use of one of their orbital shuttles to ferry down to the surface of Telos 4 to meet up with our old Zabrak friend. However, before we can take the shuttle or finish up any side quest, we get a call from one of the Athorians. He says that Circa has made their move and intends to kill all the Athorians in order to suppress the evidence of corruption. Many Athorians are already dead, so the group turns around and heads back to save Chodo and his herdmates. The Athorian embassy is littered with corpses while battle droids and mercenaries hold Chodo and his assistant, Moza, hostage. This fight can be tough because we're low level and there are so many enemies firing at once, but the companions push through and free Chodo and Moza. They thank us profusely and say that restoration will continue without circuit interference. Before we head to the dock, we need to turn in a few side quests. Most of these involve Gren's bounties, though one of them must be completed on the surface of Telos 4. First, Surik swings by the old apartments to escort Batono to the TSF precinct in the entertainment district, killing two Circa thugs along the way. Batono is a former Circa employee who wished to escape after finding out how they made their money and was sheltered by the authorians who hid him in a safe house. Gren, who dislikes Circa and wants him off the station, will make sure he testifies before the Telos Council about Circa's many crimes. We also help out with... We help... Out with fake Batu Ram, finding out from a dock worker that he passed through Nar Shada. Finally, Surik helps apprehend the gun smuggler, a Duro named Samhan, because that's the light side choice. Citadel Station also has Pazak and a swoop track, but the map is already too long, and frankly, the stuff on the surface surface is far more interesting. You can, of course, assume that Cirque won a bunch of credits at Pazak and posted the swoop track record. With Citadel Station complete, it's time to head to the hangar and take the ship down to Telos 4. Before the companions leave, they find the droids B4 and T1 waiting at the docks to stow away on a ship to Nar Shaddaa. We'd be more concerned about these two droids, but someone upgraded T1 with a lot of illegal weapons. They make a good pair, and B4 makes a reference to T1 having short man's complex, so that's a thing in the Star Wars universe. Uh, It was nice to see them free of oppressive masters. Anyway, the crew boards the shuttle and a cutscene begins. Admiral Carthonassi has arrived above Citadel Station in a ship called the Sojourn, but Grin has bad news. Karth had ordered Grin to keep the exile on the station, but she broke containment and departed for the surface. Onasi seems unfazed by the info and says it still fits into the Republic's plans and that Grin should not attempt to detain the exile any longer. Meanwhile, Atten Rand pilots the 
orbital shuttle toward the restoration zone on Telos 4's surface. However, a surface-to-air cannon fires on the shuttle, bringing it down. Atten had to work like hell to bring the shuttle to a skidding stop instead of a direct nosedive, but all three companions survived the crash landing. Sarek is the first to regain consciousness and awakes to find a Zabrak with a glowing left forearm named Baudur standing over them. Sarek has a splitting headache and doesn't remember Baldur on sight, though that seems to be more of her trying to forget the war than anything else. Kray and Atten both come around, and everyone's got shit to say about Atten crashing, crashing the ship, but we don't see how he could stop anti-aircraft fire in a ship with no shields or weapons. Baldur joins the party along with Atten, and the companions set out for an Athorian research compound that sits a few meters away that's crawling with mercenaries. Before we get that far, the group is attacked by more mercenaries, which won't stop until we get to the compound. Character Profile Bowder Born on Erdonia in an unknown year, nothing is known of the Zabrak Bowder's life during or before the Mandalorian Wars. When Erdonian colonies began to be bombed by the Mandalorians, Bowder jumped at a chance to join the fight and take revenge. Bowder worked his way up the military hierarchy and became a well-known military engineer, designing many shields and weapons for the Republic. Prior to 3960, he was commissioned as a lieutenant and was then ordered by Supreme Commander Revan to build his most advanced weapon yet, the Mass Shadow Generator, under the oversight of General Mitra Surik. The Zabrak built a weapon of mass destruction capable of killing a planet and anyone in orbit above it. We discussed the Mass Shadow Generator in much greater depth in Episode 5.0, The Execution of All Things, but the high points are fairly straightforward. The weapon replicated a gravitational anomaly known as a mass shadow that can pull ships from hyperspace, but localized it on one world and made it lethal. The mass shadow generator would crush every ship and soldier within the blast radius, crumpling the ships into hunks and ripping them downward at terminal velocity into the surface of Malachor V, cracking the world open. The ships that didn't make Planetfall would float in orbit around the broken world. In 3960, the Republic led the Mandalorians into a trap above Malachor V, and Baudur was on Surik's flagship for tech support and to activate the weapon. The Zabrak was taken aback by the ferocity of the battle when the Mandalorians almost broke through Surik's bedraggled fleet. Once Surik saw her chance, she ordered Bowder to fire the weapon with a silent nod, and the Zabrak threw a switch, activating the mass shadow generator. In an instant, it was over, and the galaxy was forever changed. Millions died, and Bowder knew that he was responsible for the deaths, while General Surik went unconscious from the shock. During the fighting, Bowder lost most of his left arm and replaced it with an energy arm. Powder's energy arm is very helpful because it can break through any force field or enemy shield on contact. Little is known of Bowder's life during the Jedi Civil War, though he did he likely didn't participate in the war. In 3958, Telos IV was decimated, and Iridonia, Bowder's homeworld, was bombarded by the Sith after Darth Malak took power. Following the Jedi Civil War, Baldur decided to try and make amends for his crimes by using his skills with engineering to help planets instead of making weapons. 
Baldur had hoped to build planetary shields, but most planets couldn't afford them or had other priorities. When the Telos Restoration Project was created in 3955, Baldur jumped the chance to fix Telos as a way to atone for his sins. The Zabrak built the intricate shield walls that border each restoration zone and was instrumental in, ch- in helping Chodo Habat and his herd begin to heal the world. Baldur spent much of his time on Citadel Station, but he eventually became frustrated by Zerka's interference and the Telos government's refusal to halt it. In 3951, Baldur decided to take matters into his own hands, and he took a shuttle to Telos Forest Surface to throw out Zerka and their mercs. Unfortunately, there were far too many soldiers, so he went into hiding. The exile at Nrand and Kreia crashed on the surface a short time later. Baldur's a very interesting character for a few reasons, and one of them is that he talks like an NPR host. He... He, he whisper talks like an NPR host. He obviously suffers from severe PTSD, later telling the exile that he has recurring nightmares about the loss of life he caused at Malachor V. Uh, interestingly, he doesn't think Revan or Surik are at fault because they were only acting to protect the galaxy while he joined to get revenge on Mandalorians. Other notes, Baldur will become a Jedi Guardian when trained by Mitra Surik because he's Force-sensitive. If the player chooses a Dark Side Exile, Baldur will begin to get red and black Sith tattoos like Darth Maul, another Zabrak. Though, I think his tattoos are only black and not black and red. Uh, but, you know, I don't know. They, they never make that clear. Anyway, Baldur also had a ball-shaped floating droid remote with him at all times, and more than 300 years after the events of KOTOR 2, the Baldur Science Award will be presented annually to brilliant scientists and engineers. Thank you so much, the Old Republic MMO. (laughs) It's not... The first person to make a war machine with a science award named after them. Um, so, the surface of Telos... <laughs> I mean, actually, it fits into the the very the Nobel tradition, because like, oh, what? people are happy that I make gunpowder and I'm dead? What if I had like, an award to offset that <laughs> forever? Yeah, it's a fine, fine tradition. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like how, so, like how we brought Warner Warner von Braun over, but forced him to live in Huntsville, Alabama. I'll always find that funny. I mean, not that we brought him over; he shouldn't have been brought over. But at least we forced sure. him to live in Huntsville. That's more of a pendants than a than an award. They don't know. There's probably NASA probably has some awful prizes on the records. That's on my beat. I should find that out at some point. Anyway. The surface of Telos is fine, but there's little to tell you about on on the show. Sure, we can spice up the big battles and duels, but we don't even have a lightsaber yet, so it's just, you know, hacking away with vibro blades and missing badly with blasters. You know, all the early level stuff that everyone loves these games for. The surface of this restoration zone is rolling grassland separated by rocky outcroppings and a large beach. At one point, you can see the shield wall protecting this zone from another that still has the acidic vapor atmosphere, which is an interesting touch. The gang runs into a bounty hunter 
who has been trying to trap the exile and turn her in for a bounty, which was a mistake. The bounty hunter dies quickly like all the other mercenary groups we find. Along the way, Mitra Surik also encounters two criminals that were wanted as part of Lieutenant Gren's requests. These two work closely with Jana Lorso, and they attack almost on site, which leads to their deaths. We'll turn the question the next time we see Gren on the station. After much roaming around, the companions find the largest mercenary group guarding the platform and console we need to allow Bowder to work his magic. Mercenary commander has some words to say, but he dies just as easily as the rest of his men. Though the group on the platform is funneling us into a shooting gallery between mercs and droids firing on both sides. It's annoying and difficult, but at least they use some tactics, which is a rarity in this universe. Once the mercs are finally all dead, Bowder gains access to the terminal and discovers that small amounts of power are being siphoned from the shield to create a small shield over the polar region. That satellite imaging shows nothing but a barren, snow-covered mesa. It's a tiny anomaly that only someone who built the shields would notice, but Bowder is the best engineer around. The group needs to get to the polar region, and luckily there's a shuttle docked in the nearby underground bunker. The underground facility is simple enough to traverse. All the companions have to do is destroy a bunch of droids and unlock the hangar doors, get the launch codes, and then turn on the reactor. The underground bunker that remains in the original release is confusing because it feels like there should be a lot more there and there's just not. However, this is the location where the fabled HK droid factory mission takes place with HK-47 and Bao Dur infiltrating the bunker on a return trip during the Battle of Telos IV. As it stands, we can't access the sublevel to get to the droid factory that Revan built but was never used and was later abandoned after his capture. The crime lord Goto later started the factory up. Oddly enough, that droid factory mission that was cut from the game because became part of the Legends continuity when it was mentioned in the 2006 reference book, The New Essential Guide to Droids. This reference occurred even before the restored content mod was released and people could could play the, that uh, that mission, which is oddly indicative of the sometimes slapped together nature of the Legends continuity. We will obviously revisit the quest during the Battle of Telos IV. The rest of the underground bunker is pretty standard. Blow up some droids, flip some switches, get some loot, and the like. Except for one tiny problem, and by tiny we mean absolutely monstrously large. The hangar is guarded by a gigantic tank droid that looks to be even taller than the Rancor Revenkarth and Mission fought in the Terra Sewers in KOTOR 1. The massive droid dies, and repeated the massive droid dies dies after repeated grenades and doses of force lightning. That's right, Surik regained her force sensitivity, and she's already throwing out force lightning, or at least we would be. Once we're out of the hangar, Atten flies the shuttle toward the polar regions, but is shot down by an HK-50 droid using a shoulder-mounted RPG. The restored content mod adds a short segment where the other HK-50 droids heap egotistical praise on the unit it shot. Looks like Atten crashed another ship. 
Everyone survives the landing, but Baldur is knocked unconscious, and so Kreia at Nemitrasuric must fight off three HK-50 assassination droids, which they do rather quickly. As a note, this is the second crash where everyone was thrown from the ship, so maybe they need seatbelt laws in the Republic. Uh, no seatbelts, the continuation of slavery. There's a lot the Republic needs to work on. <laughs> so, <laughs> Just a little. Just a little. Um, so this, this is how the Jedi Exile discovers the hidden Jedi Academy atop a lonely mesa in the polar regions of Telos IV. A wide-angle shot shows the mesa is surrounded by four snow-covered pillars, not unlike the columns that surround the Jedi Temple on Coruscant. Companions find a nearby door and enter the academy while Bowder is retrieved by a set of identical women with snow-white hair, known as the Handmaiden Sisters. All six sisters share the same father, an Echani named General Yusanis, but the youngest sister, named Brianna, had a different mother than the others. Brianna bore a striking resemblance to her mother, an exiled Jedi named RNK. That's a name you'll want to keep in the back of your head. For many reasons that we will get into in the next episode, Brianna is shunned by her sisters and referred to pejoratively as the Last Handmaiden, indicating that she was viewed as the worst in all respects. This is ironic as Brianna is the only Force-sensitive handmaiden and also joins Mitra Sirk on her adventures, even though she can't be a companion to a female exile in the game. The Academy has other strange aspects, most notably that it lacks students learning the ways of the Force, things you might expect in an Academy. Jedi Master Atris is the headmistress of the Academy, but she doesn't seek to train new students. She never even had a Padawan when the Order was still functioning. Instead, Atris seeks to wallow in her own self-loathing, claiming to be the last Jedi in the galaxy, despite knowing that four other Jedi Masters are still out there. Yes, the Sith attack when Jedi gather in numbers, but Atris didn't even attempt to train Brianna despite her Force sensitivity. This is the same Atris who arranged the Conclave at Qatar and then leaked its location to the Sith to try and trap them. The same actress who arranged Surik's return from exile just before KOTOR 2 begins. She's the worst Jedi to ever live, and you're going to find out why next time, when Mitra Surik and Atris will meet for the first time in eight years. This final boss battle on Telos 4 will be settled with debate, facts, and logic. We're being absolutely serious. It's a 15-minute war of words that doesn't disappoint. Um, but we'll have to save that for next time. Thank you all for listening to this episode of A People's History of the Old Republic. Next episode, we'll have it out with Atris on Telos 4, visit the smuggler's moon of Nar Shaddaa, and hopefully formulate a plan to rebuild the shattered Jedi Order. Please rate, comment, and subscribe to Futur on SoundCloud or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at PhotorPod or email us at photorpodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments and we will answer them on the show. I'm at AthertonKD on Twitter. And I'm at LucasAmazing on Twitter. Thank you again for listening and may the force be with you.